Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From Tula Tacos and Amigos in downtown Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business, Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. You know, all musicians want to be actors and all actors want to be musicians. That's how you get David Bowie in the Labyrinth and the Bacon Brothers. Uh, to be fair, everyone wants to be in the movie business. And over the last couple of decades, changes in technology and tax incentive programs by state and local governments have made that somewhat easier for folks to do without moving to Los Angeles. Now, wherever you do it, it's not going to be easy, and it can be lonesome if you're embarking on a passion project. And my guest, Brennan Robideau, has spent years pouring his time and life savings into one project, a documentary about pole vaulting phenom Armand Duplantis, said to be perhaps the best to ever do it, and who happens to have grown up here in Lafayette. Um, Brennan tracked Duplantis before he won gold and set records in the 2020 Olympic Games, following him around the world to document his rise in a candid feature built on 700 hours of footage. Brennan grew up in Lafayette and opened a production company, Robodeau Creative, in 2018 to take on commercial work and other projects. Brennan, welcome to Out to Lunch. Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, look, Brennan's name might sound familiar to you because of his dad, former legislator and Lafayette Mayor Joel Robodeau. And my next guest, Griff Furst, credits the former mayor's cultural economy program with helping his company, Curmudgeon Films, make a home here in Lafayette. Griff grew up in Van Nuys, California, and in the entertainment industry, too, tagging along with his dad, actor Stephen Furst, onto sets from a young age. Today, Griff makes movies both behind and in front of the camera. Uh, he has acting credits in films like The Magnificent Seven and Terminator Genesis, and has directed several sci-fi thrillers under the curmudgeon umbrella. Uh, Louisiana's production tax credit first brought Griff to Lafayette in 2008, and he met his wife, a Lafayette native, and now they split time between Lafayette, New Orleans, and LA. And he continues to run productions both in Louisiana and around the country. Griff first, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you, Christian, good to be here. And Brennan, I actually didn't make the connection that Joel was your father. Love Joel. He was such an amazing uh, support of the arts in Lafayette. So, very cool. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. So, 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 Brennan, let's start with you. you. You've sunk a lot into a passion project here, right? Born to Fly. And, and I was struck that this is something that you've done, you know, not on faith and not just because making movies is a hard thing to do, right? But because you kind of got in with, with, with Mondo Duplantis, you know, before we knew he was really going to be that guy right so you kind of looking ahead and saying man this guy's going places and i want to see where that goes so now that you're kind of in a position where you're able to put this story together how do you sell that right you've, you've made the investment of time so how do you capitalize on it figuring that out now um no i mean it's tough you know filmmaking is a tough venture and even when everything kind of went the way you'd hope uh it to go towards the end and you know he did end up winning the olympics and breaking the world record and i have this incredible story that's not just about an incredible athlete but it's really a coming of age story a father-son story there's so many layers to it um but i mean even then you know it, selling a film is difficult so you know we're in like the final rounds of financing to try and get it done obviously licensing uh i couldn't have picked let's put it this way i couldn't have picked a more complicated first feature to make based on the fact that <laughs> based on the fact that you know there's a lot of licensing that goes on it's not just my footage there's competition footage and all that sort of thing so you know I was able to do it very frugally and just kind of using my own money and 
traveling and sleeping on couches for five years, but then now that we're getting to the post-production portion, it's really the brass tacks of, okay, we actually have to complete this thing. But no, I mean, look, we have a really solid thing and it's, it's, a, it's a cool film that I think is gonna touch a lot of people. So yeah, we're in like the final stages of that. We're finishing up post-production and then we'll go into the festival circuit and see what we can do there. So Griff, you've made movies here, and by here I mean Lafayette, and there have been a handful of other productions that have come through, and, it, and it's not easy, I would think, to find experienced production folks, let alone actors if you're making it. So, so why does it even make sense to shoot a film in Lafayette, Louisiana? I didn't know when I first came in 2008 why it made sense, because I was just at work for hire in 2008. I had never been to Louisiana. I was in L.A., and somebody hired me, and they said, hey, come to Louisiana and make a couple movies with us. We have a slate of movies. And uh, when they said Lafayette, I was thinking to myself, why the hell are we not going to New Orleans? Because it was really the, the city that you, you know, hear of and dream of in L.A. And then we got to Lafayette and I ended up making uh, 20, 30 movies in Lafayette, something like that. And wow. sometimes I'll go to Louisiana, I mean, uh, uh, New Orleans to make movies or, or Atlanta. But I always want to come back to Lafayette because uh, it, it's, it's, it's easier to get around in Lafayette. I just enjoy the people and the community aesthetically. There's a lot of really cool stuff to shoot. Uh, and it's not burnt out. It's like when you have, we just shot in Atlanta and there's, I think there was 40 different productions going on there. And so when you have that level of production, the people there kind of get sick of their streets being blocked off or, um, you know, film crews in their neighborhood and stuff like that. And because Lafayette hasn't had the exposure uh, that some of the other bigger cities have, it just becomes easier. So like in our next movie that we're shooting there in April, we need a lot of very large houses, which we know Lafayette has a lot of very large houses. Now, we've, we've shot those large houses in, in uh, New Orleans as well, but the problem is is that HBO and Netflix also shoots those large houses. So they say, you know, we want $10,000 a day to shoot in our nice house, whereas in Lafayette, people are, are still uh, more supportive of the community. It's not all about money, and it's it's kind of fun to have marquee talent and things like that uh working in the house and it's brief you know it's it's a it's a limited opportunity whereas in in bigger cities atlanta new orleans the same houses are getting the door knocked on every week right um yeah so it's just a, it's it's more cost effective i think it's more fun um there's better restaurants it's easier to get around and every everybody that we bring there ends up loving being in lafayette yeah so, so brendan you've you know, look, I mean, this story that you've kind of, you do other work too, of course, but with, with Mondo, I mean, this is a Lafayette story in its own way, right? He grows up here, but it's international, right? I mean, I, I think it's maybe hard to even grasp for some people who may not, but you're basically telling the story of like Roger Federer, right? I mean, in terms of what he means to this level of uh, pole vaulting, right? I mean, this is a phenomenal athlete. I, I got to wonder though, I mean, is it, is that, does that, come with some level of uh, pressure, right? I mean, that you're, you're going to be the, the guy that kind of introduces this deeper story about this person to the world, right? A, a figure that uh, is internationally known. It's no longer just a story about a kid that went to Lafayette High School, right? Yeah, I mean, well, honestly, though, that's kind of every documentary director's dream, right? Is to be able to take something that is perhaps thought of as niche and then expand it to the, the broader audience. And, um, you know, the thing with Mondo that I always kind of latched onto was obviously this I recognize that he had this talent and that perhaps it wasn't yet recognized uh, in the mainstream, but that this really like this tight community of pole vaulters, I mean, since he was a five-year-old kid, were just absolutely obsessed with him, you know? And then when you start to learn about pole vault and you learn about track and field, and then maybe track and field hasn't gotten the kind of recognition that it deserved in America, but then overseas, it's like 
you know, the top three sports that they have. You know, we've got the football, the baseball, the basketball. They've got soccer and track and field and maybe hockey too. But, you know, those are their big sports. And so if you're a track and field athlete, you know, you're maybe not as appreciated back home. And then you go overseas and you're this big superstar. And in Mondo's case, it was like that times 10 because he was actually the best, not just a really good athlete. He was actually becoming the best in a particular sport. Um, But from my perspective, what's really cool is just being able to, yeah, it is being able to now take this story and make it accessible to the broad audience. You know, not everyone's a track and field fan, not everyone's a sports fan. And so this film really isn't a pole vault documentary. It's, I like to think of it as the coming of age story. It just happens to be about the best pole vaulter in the world. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the challenge. That's what we're working on the edit right now as to how to like make it a universal story and not just a sports story with also preserving the core, you know, drama and, uh, you know, nature of sport, which is really incredible in this. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, like, Griff, there's an idea in my head right now that, like, you know, maybe pole vaulting is not something people associate with Lafayette, Louisiana, but you're going to associate it with this person, right? And But it kind of raises, is there a specific type of film that works in Lafayette, like in terms of a production where you're saying, like, well, I've got, sounds like you do a good bit of different types of films, and you're saying to yourself, well, you know, maybe Ghost Shark might work in Lafayette, but this kind of film, we ought to do that one in New Orleans or Atlanta, yada, yada, yada. I mean, is that even calculated in, in, in choosing a location for production? For sure, for sure. Sometimes the location is a big determining factor of where we shoot, but at the same time, with technology and CGI, you can almost shoot anything anywhere, like they shot Battle of Los Angeles and Baton Rouge and Oblivion, uh, the Tom Cruise big sci-fi movie, uh, and Baton Rouge, I believe, as well. So you could shoot anything, anywhere. Sometimes, though, if it's a lot of practical locations and it's specific to something, you will want to choose that location. Uh, we have another one called Sierra Madre that takes place in uh, Mexico. And so we're looking at Las Cruces, New Mexico, because we, you just, without you know, spending $50 million building a city, uh, that just makes sense to go somewhere where the geography and the the, the um, architecture is a better match for the story. But in general, I'd say you could shoot uh most of anything anywhere with cgi and sound stages and everything like that yeah it's so brendan where do you want the the documentary to land i mean i think i think a documentaries i mean a lot of times this is the sort of thing that you get picked up at film festivals and like that's kind of how it gets introduced to the world at large maybe not in other words you know like a big movie theater or something like that i mean what does distribution for a film like this look like given that you've kind of identified it as a niche thing but also something that's niche that might have world appeal right right yeah i mean that you know and that's that's my job to do because if i can't accomplish that then then it is a, a challenge on the distribution front but you know luckily documentaries are having a real renaissance right now and people just they love documentaries they love documentary series this wouldn't be that but you know, I mean, a lot of the, the my favorite documentaries of the past years happen to be about athletics, um, you know, Free Solo and some of the other ones that, that just really kind of touched on. They, they, they were able to break out of their niche, right? You know, rock climbing is a niche, but yet everyone enjoyed Free Solo and everyone enjoyed the human story behind that. And so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's my job. My job is to take this kind of a story and make it universal. And um, where do I want it to end up? I mean, you know, any streamer, any... We have really ambitious goals for the distribution, and right now I'm solely focused on finishing it because at that point then we can actually, you know, get in front of the sales agents that are kind of waiting for a first cut and seeing what we can do as far as film festivals go and then distribution from there. So, I mean, you know, the beauty of today's world is that there's so many options and uh, it can be easy to get caught up in that too early. Um, And so I got to finish it 
and all the while we're you know we're we're planting the seeds in in certain distributors and certain sales agents and all that sort of thing to kind of let them know what's coming but they've got to see something really solid to to even want to latch on to it especially because there is that hurdle of the fact that it, they hear pole vault and they go ah, who wants to and i'm like no no trust me like there's a lot to this story it's not just a pole vault documentary you know so how is all this and I, look i kind of want to put this question to both of you, and I imagine the answer is somewhat different for, for both styles of filmmaking, but how does this stuff actually get financed, right? I mean, it seems to me like I, I remember, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that like, you know, movies are not unlike restaurants, right? People people can make a movie, and it's but it's actually hard to make money doing it, right? I mean, it's like, you know, I used to write about food a good bit, and like that was something that always struck me. Everybody would be like, well, I can cook at home, I, I can open a restaurant, and then they figure out the business side of it's actually really hard. <laughs> so, like, I mean, to, I mean, Griff, starting with you, I mean, who finances the, the kinds of movies that you make? I mean, you guys make a lot of them, and, and I mean, it just I'm always struck by the volume of this, right? And so it makes me, like, wonder, like, how is this actually churning a profit for people? Well, a lot of narrative movies do get made uh, a bit on a wing and a prayer, uh, especially for... Um, early filmmakers where you have a, a really solid idea and you find investors and you make that movie and you hope that it catches lightning in a bottle. Um, and th that's really tough to do because if you look at it statistically, the chances of you even making your money back, let alone it being a wild success are, are very slim. Now that's different for documentaries. I love documentaries. Probably 30% of the, con the content that I consume is documentaries. And I agree that it's a great time to be making documentaries because they're everywhere and the streamers are buying them up. And regardless of the subject, if there is a nice human story there, I think the audience has spoken and proven that they're in with things like Free Solo or even Tiger King. It's like, who would imagine they'd be watching a doc about that? But it's it's well done and it's intriguing. And so, or Lady in the Dane was on HBO, another phenomenal documentary. Um, then there's things like Fantastic Fungi, which is uh, it doesn't have any of those things the other documentaries have, but it was also a wild success, and everybody's seen that documentary. Um, but in terms of the narrative stuff, what we do now is we spend um, modest development money uh, on ideas that we like or source material we like, whether it's a comic book or a novel or a short story, um, and we work to get a, a screenplay or a teleplay in place, and then we go straight to uh, a director um, a good director that we think talent wants to work with. We get that director to sign on board, and then we go to marquee talent, um, like Morgan Freeman uh, or Billy Bob Thornton, because they're the ones who greenlight the movie. Once you have one of those guys, and you can't get one of those guys without a good director. So great material attracts a good director, a good director and great material attracts a good star. And then once you have that marquee talent, you can go to any of the outlets, whether it's uh, Netflix or um, a studio or an international sales agent, and they'll all give you the financing uh, to make the movie once you have the star, because they know once you have that star attached that the movie is worth at minimum X. And so they'll give you that X to go make the movie with and deliver it. And it's called a negative pickup. I mean, the negative being the negative of the film. You shoot the film, you give it to them, and it's kind of like a cash on delivery thing. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Major. I'm talking with filmmakers Griff First and Brennan Robidoux. Brendan, I mean, it sounds like, you know, a good space for your film, right, would be Netflix or some streaming service. A lot of these things are not ad-supported. I mean, people aren't necessarily going and buying tickets. To, so, so what is the, I guess, what does the payout structure look like for a film like yours? I mean, is it that they're going to license it? Is that the idea, that they come in and say, like, here's a package deal, we'll get to license and have exclusive streaming rights to your film for X number of years? Or is it more like a royalty thing where you get, you know, 
tiny fractions of a cent <laughs> in terms of like the number of plays, and they add up over time, and, and that, that ends up being how you make money off of it. I mean, I think for documentaries, I mean, Griff, honestly, is much more, um, you know, a, better to ask just because he's actually financed successfully and sold many projects. You know, sure. this being my first, it's, it's a learning experience kind of the entire time. But, you know, for me, from the get-go, it was self-financed for like five years. Um, and then with, the, with him accomplishing what he was able to accomplish, there was some development money that came in. Obviously, he's half Swedish, so there was some interest from, from that realm. Um, perhaps some pre-sales that are uh, in those territories. So, I mean, for a documentary, you have so many options, and, you know, you can go territory by territory. You can sell to certain countries if they're interested, especially with, like, track and field. They might be interested in Europe a little bit more, and someone like a Mondo character uh, is very attractive to them. Uh, we don't want to do too many pre-sales because we do believe that we have something really strong that could perform well uh, at a film festival, for example. And so in, in that realm, yeah, you know, your hope is that you can have something that does uh, has a really strong release. And then, you know, there's some streamers that, that are interested in it. And ultimately, yeah, it would effectively be, a, you know, a licensing deal. Depending on the streamer, some of them want to license perpetually. Some of them want a term um, for this kind of a project because of the certain regulations around the IOC footage and how long they license that. I don't think there would ever be a perpetual <laughs> license for this project just because there's, uh, you know, every 10 years is a, you, there's a re-kick in of the uh, licensing fees for certain footage. Hmm. Um, so, you know, you're looking at that kind of realm, you know, that five to 10 year license would be like a, a perfect situation. Yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, you've spent five years on this at this point already. And I mean, it, it sounds like you're kind of on the other side of the storytelling and you, you have a picture in your mind. I mean, does it, is it at this point that you're starting to think, okay, what's, What's my next story? I mean, I, I know this is a bit, to use Griff's term, lightning in a bottle, right? I mean, it's not every day you're going to find a world-class uh, Olympian to tell a story about in your backyard. But, I mean, is that the kind of thing you want to duplicate as much as you can? Or, or do you see yourself moving into another type of subject matter? Yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to be, you know, the the athlete-type docu-director. Um, and, no, there's it's for sure that... The sophomore film is always a big challenge, so, you know, I, uh, I'm thinking about it right now. I've got a big project to finish, but I'm absolutely planting the seeds for, like, next projects. And I think the beauty of Louisiana and kind of what's kept me here is the more you look around, the more you realize how many stories there are. You know, I definitely love documentaries. I see myself staying in that. I love narrative, too, and I'd love to venture into that at some point in my career, but... There are so many stories in Louisiana, and a lot of them really fit in that documentary space, and so... Yeah, I mean, I think for me, as soon as I kind of can get to this point of this film where we're at that, you know, we're at that spot where it's kind of got its legs of its own and I can step back for a moment, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, kick it into gear and find the next story. And I'd love to keep it in a Louisiana style. You know, there's, there's a lot here to, to talk about. And it's not, it, you know, it r runs the gamut of <laughs> topics. Sure. Griff, you said that, you know, you, you, you were watching a lot of documentaries. You've done a good narrative stuff. I mean, have you made any documentaries? No, I haven't. I've always wanted to. Gotten into a lot of conversations um, with different artists who are making documentaries and explored it. Um, even tried unsuccessfully to option a nonfiction book that I loved uh, hmm. recently um, that I couldn't get the rights to. Uh, and it's because a huge star had gotten it. I didn't know that at the time. Um, <laughs> But I haven't because I'm known for narrative. Um, uh, I'm able to move quickly on narrative. And I know that documentaries, uh, it's not uncommon for them to take five, even 10 years to do. And while that sounds 
um, great on a spiritual level to do that. That's a, it's a really long commitment. And that's why I love watching them because the amount of time and love that goes into producing these things is extraordinary. Whereas a narrative, um, you know, it still takes several years. The one we're about to shoot, I've been working on it for four years, but it hasn't been, um, it's been part-time, right? It only becomes full-time once we start shooting it. And from what I understand, having not made documentaries, doing a, doing a great documentary takes a lot, a lot of time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's always it's something I find fascinating about filmmaking, right? The idea that the arc on these things can be so long. It's like it, it makes me wonder if <laughs> the risk that you take in some ways that the world passes you by by the time you give it a good idea, right? Especially culturally, right? That you come in and say, well, this is interesting and people will like this. But you're also like, especially I would imagine in, in narrative filmmaking, commercial kind of stuff where you're, you're aiming for maybe a larger audience or even a niche audience. It's like, you start and you don't know if by the time you get to the end of it, that audience that you or that market that you've identified is, is going to have the same tastes. I mean, that seems like a really crazy uh, structure for well, <laughs> developing he, he, a product. On top of that, I mean, and Brennan, correct me if I'm wrong, if this isn't your experience, but there's so much in life in general that's unknown. And with documentary, I don't, it's, there's so much story editing that happens, right? It's like you're, photogra you're photographing and you don't quite, the, you kind of find the story as you're going, right? So that feels like it would give me so much anxiety, whereas like I like to have a roadmap with dialogue because <laughs> at least I know where I'm going, but it's amazing that you can create these, um, that's, these, these stories that speak to the human spirit out of, out of story editing and, and somebody who's starting with not really knowing where it's going and then finding it later in the edit or sometime years down the line in the shoot, that's just, yeah, that, that would give me so much anxiety just spending the same amount of time I do on a, on a narrative and not knowing where the story is going to head and kind of finding out there's something exciting about that process, but would also, I think, drive me a little nuts not knowing if I'm going to get it or, or any of that stuff. Yeah, it causes a lot of sleepless nights for sure. I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, because rarely with a documentary are you, are you, um, are you documenting something, I should say, in retrospect, right? I mean, there, there's definitely those, not reenactment, but there's those kind of pieces that you're talking about something that's already happened. But a lot of my favorite documentaries are the ones that are actually capturing verite. It's happening in the moment. And yeah, you don't know what the ultimate story will be. You're hoping maybe for a certain thing to happen. In this one, at least there was like a North Star where I was like, okay, if he does this, at least I have like a true, you know, point A to point B type thing and then everything in between. But no, you're absolutely right that you're finding the story as you shoot, um, and which is why it's so hard to finance from the beginning. That's why you got to kind of, you, you do have to take that risk. And, and it's an unfortunate thing because I know there's a lot of stories that people would want to tell and it's just like impossible to sometimes take that risk. It Financially, it hurts. Um, personally, it hurts. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a lot of, it's a lot of sacrifices. And so, yeah, when you can't tell someone what the end result is, then you kind of just have to go about it. So it's, um, but, you know, especially with documentary filmmaking, we're in it because we love filmmaking ultimately. And um, that's, that's, you know, that's why we're doing it. And it, if we can turn it into um, a successful project that actually is financially a smart move, then that's awesome. But ultimately, I think everyone knows going into a documentary, especially in the early days, that... You're doing it because you're really passionate about a story and, you know, what will be will be. Brennan, you know, you said earlier that, look, you kind of identify this guy, like, and you, you hear from the pole vaulting community that he's uh, special. But, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you, you, you were not a pole vaulter, right? 
No, no, not an athlete at all. <laughs> so, so I mean, like, I mean, to some extent, like, how did you, I mean, was it just a raw hunch? I mean, like, I just feel like if I plug this in, he's like, you know, Christian, this guy's a really good golfer. I think that you should really, I mean, like, I don't know that I could evaluate that even if you tell me, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, he won this, he won that. I mean, what was it at that moment in time that you said, okay, this guy's actually going to be where I think he's going to go and not just very good, but you know, potentially legendary, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I look at the time I was still living with my parents. I had spent a good bit of time working in the film industry in New Orleans and was coming back to get married and was trying to save some money. And my parents lived right across the street from Lafayette High. That's where I grew up my entire life. And then, of course, one day in the newspaper, advertiser, I suppose, um, you know, talking about Mondo Duplantis, this kid who just jumped 19 feet in the pole vault. And now he was broke the world junior record. Now, again, not knowing anything about pole vault or track and field that much um i don't know it was like something struck and i thought okay hold on here like he goes to lafayette high i live across the street like let me just introduce myself and kind of learn about this and i don't know maybe there's something there i mean it was total at this point it was desperation i just needed to be doing something with my life (laughs) you know and and i hadn't like gotten to direct a project and take on something so i figured this could be something interesting and yeah, I mean, then you just start to look into it a little bit. You start peeling back the layers, and, and you recognize the story that is growing right in front of you, and the fact that he was literally across the street. I could see him pole vaulting literally from the driveway, effectively, and you're thinking, this, this, yeah. And yeah, you just start looking at the numbers, and then you realize his dad was once a pole vaulter who didn't make it. You know, he, he was able to get to the professional level, but he never had his chance at the Olympics, and so there's this family dynamic and a father-son dynamic, and then there's the niche aspect of this sport, and then he's f- super famous in this, but then other people don't know about it. And, man, you just start peeling back the layers, and you realize you, you might be onto something here. And so, yeah, I mean, I just started shooting. I just showed up and started shooting. Well, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. I suppose desperation could be the mother of success. So, um, <laughs> Brennan and Griff, thanks so much for joining me today on Out the Lunch of Katiana. Well, thanks, Christian. Good to be here. Same. Thank you. Uh, my guests on Out the Lunch Katie and I have been filmmakers Brennan Robodeau and Griff First. We edited this conversation to fit into our time slot here on KRVS. And you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Brennan and Griff and the patina of the silver screen by listening to the Out the Lunch Katie and a podcast. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsacadiana.com. If you want to know what we all look like, you can find photos from the show on itsacadiana.com and on our social media. These photos were taken by Aster Morgan and you can find Aster's photos at astermorgan.com. This week, conditions compelled us to record out to lunch Acadiana by Zoom. And next week, we hope to be back at our regular lunch spot, Tula Tacos in Jefferson Street in downtown Lafayette. Tula's open for lunch and dinner and stays open late every day except Monday. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and KRBS 88.7 FM. Producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researcher is Leah Erdialis. And I'm Christian Mader. I'm editor of The Current, Lafayette's nonprofit uh, info community. For local news, commentary, and more, head over to thecurrentla.com and sign up for our newsletter. I'll see you here again next time for more business and conversation on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Out to Lunch Acadiana is recorded live over lunch at Tula Tacos and Amigos. Tula Tacos and Amigos offers street-style tacos, margaritas, and an open-air courtyard on Jefferson Street in the heart of downtown Lafayette.
Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.